Relay FM. This is Upgrade, episode 285. Today's show is brought to you by Direct Mail, Bombus, and DoorDash. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined on assignment by Mr. Jason Snell. Hello, Jason Snell. Well, wait, assignment means that I'm not here, but I am here. So I'm just from a remote location. I don't know. Okay. You can't. You can't. No one knows where I am. It's yep. a hotel room. Yeah. But I'm here. I'm I'm here so and I'm present. Usually, Jason, when you're in hotel rooms, we have new Apple Harbor to talk about, but that's not happening today. This is no. merely a vacation that you are on. Yeah, I'm just I'm just on my way from one place to another. But as we know, around. as we all well know, as is told by the upgrade law, Jason will never miss an episode. So here he is. That's right. And also, nobody wants to talk about this, Mike, because we should do our Snell Talk question. Thomas wants to know for the hashtag Snell Talk question. Jason, how is your phone oriented in your pocket? Is the screen facing you, away from you? Is it upside down or right side up? Do you think about this, or does it just go in any way it happens to be? I feel like we really, every couple of years, we have one of these things where we talk about dock orientation and where you put your phone and and, and all of these other things that are just personal preference, mm-hmm. and they all come out, and everybody gets to uh, share their opinion. But to please Thomas, I will say, I put my phone in my pocket with the screen facing inward because then if something hits me in the thigh it is less likely to break the screen Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um with the top of the phone going in first yep so that if i pull the phone out it's in my hand in the right orientation there is absolutely no other way to put your phone in your pocket this is the way to do it there are three other ways, plus, like, I guess, sideways wrong, if you have very large pockets, but don't do those the They're other all ways. Wrong. You put, you put right. like, like top of the phone facing down, screen towards you. Because, you could, very rightly said, you do not want to break the screen, right? So, like, bumping into something, you might break the screen. And the other, with the phone is facing down, as you say, when you take it out of your pocket... You don't have to do anything, right? Your phone, right. Is, when you look at it, is in the correct orientation. Like, I cannot imagine although I'm sure I'm going to find out why anybody would want to do it any other way. It is the only way. Also, there's a legacy issue uh, from when before when there was a headphone jack. It yep. was on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're Alex Cox and you have a, um, a battery, <laughs> you plug it in mm-hmm. uh, to the lightning port. And so, again, you would need it that way. But it is true that it used to be that the headphone jack was on, on the, the top. top. The first one. And you, and it was recessed in such a way that not all headphones would go, so you, would, would fit, so you needed an adapter if you were using some sort of headphones. But that, it was only on the first iPhone that they did that. Uh, it was a bad idea. Yes. Thank you so much to Thomas for that wonderful Snell Talk question. You can, uh, I nearly called it Hell Talk, which is like a different... That's a different thing. Maybe we could do that for Halloween. Summer of fun. <laughs> Send in your Hell Talk question <laughs> for that. <laughs> Hashtag Snell Talk to get your question in to help us start a future episode. Jason, would you permit me to do some follow-out to a new project that I'm working on? Plug away, Mike. Plug away. Thank you so much. I have a brand new show here at Relay FM. It's called The Test Drivers, uh, and it's myself and the amazing tech YouTuber Austin Evans. And on The Test Drivers, we dive in deep to tech of all kinds. We put it through its paces, new stuff, old stuff, weird stuff, good stuff. We want to help you decide what your next daily driver should be. That's the whole idea of the show is we want to take products, we want to use them, we want to understand them across all technology, no matter who makes the product, whether it's Google or Apple or Microsoft, Samsung, the whole 
tech landscape. We want to go software, hardware, it doesn't matter if it's interesting, we want to talk about it. Uh, we've released episode one so far, which focuses on Samsung's new phones, like the new S20, S20 Plus, and S20 Ultra, because Austin got to spend some time with them. Uh, so we talk about those. And on episode two, we're going to be doing something that I'm really excited to talk about, which is to basically how to try and understand how are you supposed to choose what Android phone you want to buy if you want to buy an Android phone. Like, there's so much choice. They change so often. How are you supposed to choose? So that's going to be our second episode, along with some other stuff as well. Uh, I also want to talk about whether folding phones really can be daily drivers right now. So uh, we'll talk about that on episode two, which is going to be out uh, probably next week. I'm recording every couple of weeks. There'll be an episode every couple of weeks. Uh, this is basically because I've wanted to do a show like this for a long time, and Austin is like the perfect person uh, to collaborate with on a project like this because I care about all of technology, um, and I don't get to talk about all of technology everywhere, right? Because like most of the shows that I do, we're mostly focused on Apple and talking about the latest Android phones doesn't fit. Uh, plus, Jason doesn't want to talk about folding phones, so I had to find something I don't want to talk about folding phones. I don't. So That's true. Go to relay.fm slash the test drivers, or you can search for the test drivers uh, in Apple Podcasts, we're Overcast, Pocket Cast, everywhere. Uh, we have tons of awesome stuff in the works for this show. We have lots of grand ideas and big, big, big thoughts. So it would mean a lot to me if you checked it out. Um, I think me and Austin have a great chemistry together, so I think you may enjoy it. So go to relay.fm slash test drivers or the test drivers, whichever one you prefer. They both work because it's impossible to remember URLs sometimes. So go check it out. I have some long-term follow-up, very long-term follow-up. This follow-up yes. was so long-term that I read it and was like, that's interesting. And then Jason sent me an email demanding we put it in the show. So uh-huh. um, this follow-up comes from ATDL. Uh, that was the, the name on the email. So that's the name that we will go with. Uh, would you like – I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read okay. it out. Let me talk about it. This is follow-up from episode 35 of Upgrade. <laughs> Uh, at 14 minutes and 26 seconds, you addressed my question as to whether you could imagine T9 input on the Apple Watch. Uh, T9 input, uh, we're, we're breaking away from the email for a moment. T9 input is if you had ever used a phone like this, or maybe you're just not aware of it, where you would have a number pad, right? One to nine when phones have physical buttons. But characters two to zero uh, or two to nine could be used for letters, So, but they would be assigned in like a weird order. So for example... If you wanted to type the letter C, you would have to press the number two three times, A, B, C. And they had a little printing on them. That's I remember this letter. That's that's one of my reasons for wanting this in is I, I really do remember this question because it took me aback. It seemed like such a strange request, right? Because it's kind of old school text input. But anyway, continue, continue the but letter. The, you know, the, the reason you would maybe want to do it is because it allows you to put a somewhat functional keyboard into a very small space, right? So you, exactly. can, you can imagine exactly. this, this episode, which is a great title, is called Where the Fluoroelastomer Meets the Road. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that was about, but that was a good title for episode 35. Yep. I guess we were talking about some kind of rubber the um apple watch bands are fluoroelastomer that's what apple wants to call them instead of rubber bands where the rubber meets the road is uh it's not rubber anymore it's fluoroelastomer good times episode 35 classic classic clearly uh we're still talking about it 250 episodes two literally 250 episodes later this is is where this the great it's the grand uh episode 35 250th anniversary episode today (laughs) (laughs) That's that's what we're going with so anyway yeah 
this is also follow-out to Connected 280 at 1 hour, 22 minutes and 40 seconds, where Stephen Hackett mentioned he used the scribble function on the Apple Watch a fair amount, which is where you can uh, scribble with your fingers to type. To, to, to put in characters and connected 281 at 1 minute and 33 seconds where Federico discussed a popular I like keeping those in because I love that they put them in there mm-hmm. uh, where Federico discussed a popular new watch app called FlickType which is essentially a swipe keyboard on the Apple Watch on episode 35 of Upgrade Jason gave some good natured ribbing about whether T9 made sense <laughs> I get it it's almost like asking if Apple should release a slide rule app in addition to its calculator app but now that the Apple Watch has been around for ex- almost exactly exactly five years i'm wondering if you changed your mind does siri and scribble really work well enough for apple to cut the watch's tether to the iphone how often do you actually use the watch to compose messages and how much more often would you use it if there was some other key entry option available steven seems to share jason's view in 2015 that apple is probably committed to siri and scribble and is unlikely to offer another option mike seems to think that apple should offer a native swipe keyboard that is true mike does think that uh, i personally find Siri and Scribble to be quite cumbersome to compose messages and I don't know how independent the watch can be about some other kind of text entry when I asked you about T9 in 2015 I thought I was being pretty modest I didn't dare to dream for a full size swipe keyboard on that tiny tiny screen so Jason do you still stand by T9 being ludicrous for the Apple Watch how do you type or put enter text into the Apple Watch and do you think there could be a better way I think the T9 stuff is ludicrous only, and I'm glad that uh, that this letter writer thinks it was good-natured. Um, only because Apple, from Apple's perspective, it's like, why would we provide compatibility with muscle memory from really old phones, even if it was effective? But I think asking the question is, how do I do better text input? And that's an important question. Was Scribble there at the beginning? I thought Apple added Scribble. No, that, that's new. So, like in 2015, that wasn't a thing. M- maybe in the last couple of years. Yeah, so that that's part of it, is it was just... So Scribble is better, and in that... Uh, in that connected episode, Stephen points out a really great thing that you may not have noticed, which is if you start writing something in Scribble, these little arrows come up and you can actually either tap on that or you can use the crown and it's it's guessing what you're typing. So there is autocomplete. It's just super subtle. Yeah, I, that blew my mind. I had no idea yeah, right? that was a feature. They should make a bigger point of that because that, yeah. that makes it even more useful. Yeah, me too. Me too. So uh, I think... I don't love Scribble. It is frustrating to write something so slowly with your fingertip. I found, and it's not really, you know, we call it Siri, it's dictation. I think dictation, when it works on the Apple Watch, is pretty good. There are still moments where I, t- I, I tap it and start to talk, and it just doesn't register. And I don't know what that is and why that happens, that sometimes whatever I do, whether it's a Siri input or whether it's just dictation, it just can't talk to the server and it fails and that's frustrating but when it works it actually works really well once you get the hang of saying you know great exclamation point wait a second comma let me think about it question mark right like uh, once you learn to talk like that you can do pretty well but uh i would say this flick type thing um it's a great idea and I agree with Stephen that it's less likely that Apple will put it on there because Apple is maybe too proud to do something like that on the Apple Watch and be ridiculed for it. Mm-hmm. But I think it should be an option. I think I think that app proves that it's doable and that uh, for some people, they would rather kind of have a keyboard analog. And it is doing exactly what the original iPhone keyboard did, which is um, making a lot of guesses about what word you're actually trying to type because you're finger is big and the keyboard is small and you're going to miss letters so um 
I, I, I think it would be great if they would do it because this app is a great proof of concept that they could. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, like Stephen, I am skeptical that they actually will. Um, but you know, I, I think it's a good point. Like, you're not gonna your watch is not a phone, but a text input needs to happen from time to time. Um, I just think. Uh, you know, I think the dictation is the right thing to do. It's just that it is still not as reliable as it should be. And Scribble is too slow for me anyway, which is why if I had the choice between Scribble and FlickType, I would choose FlickType for sure. It is a nicer way to uh, input text. I mean, plus we're getting, you know, a lot of people are now starting to get used to it because Apple implemented this method of typing into the iPhone keyboard. Um, so that's why right. I think they will do it because they have already worked on a system and they've got it on one platform. And I actually think it makes even more sense to have something like this in the Apple Watch and the iPhone because it's an it's a much more, in my opinion, forgiving typing uh, system provided it works correctly. I think actually, and when I talk about Apple's pride, I think you've got the exact line in there, which is um, it's not about putting a keyboard on the Apple Watch. It's about putting swiping to type on the Apple Watch. Mm-hmm. And then they can say, look, that we did this on the iPhone and it worked really well. So now we're adding it to the Apple Watch. And it's not a it's, it's not a commentary on scribble or uh, dictation failing. It's more an exciting new feature. And, yep. you know, honestly, Apple keyboard wants to do it that way. Yeah. does not work in the idea of you meaning to, like, hunt and peck your... That does that's ridiculous on the Apple Watch screen. It's too small. But having a keyboard as a way to allow you to do swipe typing, that makes a lot more sense. But yeah. 8TDL, thank you for this wonderful uh, follow-up. I personally enjoyed the detail of it. I really loved that you put timestamps yeah. in there. That was just so wonderful. And we'll check back with you in 250 episodes. For what for? I don't know. I don't know whether the brainwave interface into the Apple Watch is good enough. Okay. We'll Who can say what the future brings, Mike? But I'm sure there'll be something. Uh, Jason, we also received another anonymous uh, email from an Apple employee stating that, and I quote, Dongle Town is a real place at Apple Park. We have a room where any employee can go to get whatever dongle they need. This person sent us uh, photographic evidence of these dongles wearing a Dongle Town t-shirt. Um, this was too good to not include in today's episode. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. Obviously, we can't share the image, but you can rest assured that me and Jason can attest to its realness. I have heard from uh, many, multiple, I should say, multiple Apple employees that the Dongletown t-shirt is a very popular t-shirt at Apple Park. Heaven is a place on Earth, and Dongletown is a place in Cupertino. This episode is brought to you by our friends over at Bombus. Working out is hard. It's always been hard. Bomber socks can't change that, but they can make it more comfortable. Whether you're very into sports or planning to get very into sports or maybe just like a little bit into the gym, Bombers can help with performance socks in styles made especially for basketball, tennis, running, golf, and more. They're made of a lightweight polycotton blend, which means no matter how hard you're working, your feet will stay cool, dry, and comfortable. They provide support in places you didn't even know you needed it, like your arches. Each sock is actually built of a special arch support system it's not too tight it's just right constantly pausing your treadmill to adjust twisted bunched up socks is enough to make anyone ready to quit and just leave and go get like i don't know a milkshake but that's why bombas are designed with left right contouring and a y-stitched heel so they stay perfectly in place look these people very clearly care about socks more than you have ever thought to care about socks in your life so you got to trust it i am a very happy bombas customer i have lots of their ankle socks 
And I never want to wear ankle socks made by anyone else ever in my entire life. These things are absolutely perfect. They're so comfortable. I love them. I don't know if you've ever noticed that annoying toe seam that most socks have. Bumbus got rid of that little ridge on the top so they're smooth across the entire top of the feet. That, my friends, is some sock innovation. And for every pair that you buy, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. So go to bombas.com slash upgrade today and you'll get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S.com slash upgrade for 20% off bombas.com slash upgrade. Our thanks to Bombas for their support of Upgrade and all of Relay FM. It's uh, a wonderful thing when we have a sock sponsor, Mike. I know you love sock sponsors, Jason. I I do. They're my they're, they're my your favorite. favorite. They're your very favorite socks. Ever when I was back on the Sockwise podcast, I loved them there too. Mm-hmm. Special. That's where we talked about socks for thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jason, I want to talk to you about Mac Pros used by Mac Pros today. Okay, is this the Mac Power users now? Um, sure, kind of. Yeah. Actually, right. it's a little Great. crossover here. So I want to talk about the Mac Pro specifically used by uh, Macintosh professionals. Because recently, uh, Apple brought me into contact with a number of creative professionals to demonstrate how the Mac Pro and the Pro Display XDR, especially are helping them evolve and like expand their workflows into ways that they couldn't before. So I have a bunch of stuff that I want to talk about. But overall, what I actually really enjoyed about this experience is seeing how these products are being used by the people that really need them and also the people that I think it's clear to see Apple are targeting with the Mac Pro, like real creative professionals. To give you an idea of what I'm talking about here, um, I got to speak to Thomas Carter of Trim Editing, who was actually previously on Mac Power Users when the Mac Pro came out. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd had one for a bit. Uh, Luna Animation, a company, an animation company who did some work on the recently released Jumanji film. Uh, Jason Hawks, who is an aerial photographer who straps a MacBook Pro into a helicopter and hangs out the side of it and takes pictures. One of the coolest people I've <laughs> met in my entire life. Uh, and also music producer Estelle Rubio, who uses a MacBook Pro to record and master music. And Estelle was doing something which was really surprising that I'll talk about in a little bit. But I want to talk about the Mac Pro first, because that was like... I think the whole reason that they wanted, ideally, to have people talking to people like me to talk about why the Mac Pro is great for them. Right. This is the this actually answers, I think, one of the underlying questions that we've had about the Mac Pro since it was announced, which is, who exactly is the Mac Pro for? Like, I feel who, like I know who did Apple. <laughs> who did Apple design this product mm-hmm. for? Because it's probably not me and probably uh-huh. not you. No, but you met not. them. I, I genuinely feel like, I mean, I have a lot to say on this now, but I, I genuinely feel like I have now met the people that this product was made for. So... There were obviously we had like two people working in the video field, and then uh, they they were really the ones who were take making the most of the Mac Pro itself. Um, Estelle and Jonathan, the photographer and the music producer, they were mostly focused on the Pro Display XDR and how that helps them, but also the MacBook Pro. But the Mac Pro was clearly very focused around what you can do with it when looking at video, whether it's editing or animation. Obviously, we know this, right, that the Mac Pro gets helps these people get their stuff done faster, right? So everybody was talking about significant performance gains, whether it's exporting and rendering or seeing more video feeds on the screen at once, right? The more power you pack into a system, the more you're going to get out of it. And that's what's going on, right? Like 
we've heard people talk about this already, like using being able to use the actual 8K files rather than reference files, right? Like you can use this stuff in Final Cut because the machine can handle it. And the time stuff is really good because if you imagine a render time being taken down, it means that people can deliver their projects faster because it can handle more. There's less back and forth. So that was I watched this uh, one demo from Lunar Animation and they were showing this uh, video that they'd made for an iPhone game. It was an animated video. And they were showing me the animation app Maya, right? M-A-Y-A. Yeah. And what they were doing, so like they had this final footage of like these um, skeletons coming out of the ground, right? And they had like five skeletons coming out of the ground and running towards the screen. Now, when they were working on an iMac Pro on this, they couldn't in real time watch and animate and adapt all five skeletons that have to do like two at a time. So you would animate two of them, then you'd go in and animate another two, then the last one. Then you would have to render it down to a video file and make sure that they're not accidentally colliding with each other, right? Because you can't see all of them at the same time because the iMac Pro just couldn't handle it, right? But with the Mac Pro, they can do all of them at the same time. So what you were seeing, what was happening before is an animator would be animating part of a scene, rendering it out watching the video playback, taking notes, being like, oh, okay, so uh, this timestamp, one of them crosses over the other one, I don't want that. Then having to go back, make those adjustments, watch it again, make sure you see what I mean. So there's like, it's not just you're saving time because it's faster and it can render more at the end. You're also having more capability during the work time. So you're saving people's time by meaning they don't have to go back around and around and around. Sure. And... What I liked about this demo specifically is Maya is not an application made by Apple, right? So it is not as well optimized for the Mac Pro. Like apparently they have been doing some optimizations, but it's not like Final Cut, right? So even applications that are not made by Apple and tuned specifically to work well with the hardware, you can see benefits from it. So I thought that that was like a very interesting thing to see that dropping this machine into already existing setups will make substantial differences, right? Which is what you would want because having to wait for the software to all just be updated, I mean, it's not gonna, it's not, it's not gonna get you what you want, right? Because then it's like that whole idea of buying hardware and the hope that software will someday become better for it, which is like a terrible thing to do. But yeah, because, don't do that. No, you don't do that. But because this machine can handle it. You're good. So I really got a sense for why looking at stuff like this that the Mac Pro can exist. They were also showing how they could have multiple applications rendering things in the background and they were using like multiple screens, you know, like the what is it's not Windows, home the, the desktops, multiple desktops that have like different apps running at a time. So uh-huh. they'd have like this animation app rendering this thing, this animation app rendering this thing, and they were saying they just couldn't you can't do that on the on an iMac Pro, it would just slow down and sputter. And they had a kind of um I don't remember the exact specs, but they had like a, what they were showing all of this on was like one of the middle of the road ones when it was like 13 or 15 grand, this Mac Pro. So expensive, but they weren't showing me this on like the highest end machine, right? It was like kind of the, what people seem to say like, oh, this is the kind of amount of money you'd want to spend on one of these things, right? In the kind of 13 to 15,000 level to get that machine that's like the best of everything that can be given without going into crazy territory. Um, so I really got the sense from all of this as to why the Mac Pro exists. Like it feels like Apple 
um, making machines, like this machine specifically, uh, you know, I, I feel like in general, Apple's computers now, the Mac especially, they are made with the capability to serve people's needs at different levels, right? So for most work, an iMac and a MacBook Air is what you need, right? Because you're answering email, you're doing web browsing, right? That the, the consumer laptops can and do work for even people in working scenarios. But then you have the MacBook Pro and the iMac Pro for more heavy tasks. It's super sufficient, right? So for me and you editing our shows, the iMac Pro can do it, right? For sure. app developers, MacBook Pro, iMac Pro, they can do it. They can deal with it, right? Like that, they Apple kind of have that world covered now. And I think it's become more clear to me, having seen these very different, more much more demanding uh, workflows and creative people, that I can see that the Mac Pro, it was made for that type of work. It's a type of work that could not be delivered well enough on what Apple was offering, right? Like, And I feel like we can see that now. Like, People in these types of creative fields, which we can clearly see that Apple was positioned this, this, this line of products towards, they needed this more than anybody else because they couldn't get their needs serviced by Apple because it just the raw power or the expandability was just not there. And I understand, like, trust me, I understand that there are people that want that hardware, like the Mac Pro. The more time I've spent looking at that thing, the more I want one, because I think it's super futuristic and cool looking. But I know it's not for me. It is out of my budget range to get it configured the way that I want. And I'm cool with that, because the hardware was not made for me. Like, I feel like I now have a better sense of why they designed it the way that they did and have positioned mm-hmm. it the way that they have because the type of people that needed a machine like this, Apple just wasn't making it. Right. Um, Lunar Animation were also kind of talking about how when they, they worked on the credit scene for Jumanji, like the end credit scene, and they got like very, very short timelines. This project came to them like super soon before it needed to be finished effectively which was an interesting thing to me i don't know why i didn't really ask it's like i don't want to wonder why exactly the movie studios do things the way that they do but they were saying that because they had the mac pro and the pro display they could accept this job if they didn't have it they probably couldn't have accepted the job because they wouldn't have had enough time to get like a reference monitor in the studio like having the pro display meant that they didn't need to get that type of monitor. They don't have one because we all know now they're really expensive. And also there was this like large set of assets. There's like this big, uh, wonderfully textured map, which goes in the background of the credits thing. You've seen these kind of credit scenes, right? Like it's the one where all yeah. the big stars are at the end and they've got all this animation that's referring back to things you've seen in the movie. Um, and the iMac pro would have taken too long for it to render and they wouldn't have been able to see everything in real time, but the Mac Pro let them do that. Um, Oh, the cost. So this is super fascinating to me. Cost is not a factor for some of these companies when the hardware is so powerful because, so like this is like a thing, like how can, you know, how can X company afford four of these $15,000 Mac Pros? Well, they lease them over multiple years. So they're just Mm -hmm. paying an amount of money. um, And then at the end of the lease, They'll decide whether they want to pay the rest or they'll get a new machine, right? That's how they've been doing it for years. So they're still just leasing. Maybe the lease is a little more expensive, but they don't need to plop down $45,000 to buy three of them, right? They're just maybe making their lease a bit more expensive. But they're saying like at the end of the lease now, if they buy that machine, 
the expandability of the Mac Pro means they probably don't need to get a new computer next year, just new parts. So on the long term, these could be way better for them, right? But the thing that opened my eyes the most was so a company like Lunar Animation, who are making animation, that they make stuff like for iPhone games, they make stuff for movie studios, right? The software licenses they need per animator is $16,000 a year. A year. <laughs> right? So yeah. they showed me this chart of hardware. It's like three there's like three graphs, like hardware, software, animator. And the lowest portion, even when buying these Mac Pros, it's like hardware is the least expensive, software is the middle, and the animator is the most expensive part. So they you know, like if you're paying that much for software, you want it to run on the best hardware you can get it on. And also animators are so expensive that if you can make their time more productive by having them wait around for less stuff, you're that's making it. money back, right? That's that's the calculation that I think is the most important for a lot of this pro stuff is you've got a, a hopefully highly paid professional mm-hmm. person using that as their tool. Yep. And if you can make if you pay money to make them more productive, you're saving money. Like yep. it's that it's actually a fairly simple math calculation that if you can make them more productive because they're no longer waiting around for some period of time, then it's worth spending the money to do it just because in the end you're paying them to not work when they're mm-hmm. waiting because your tech isn't good enough. And like I feel like I knew that before, but my th- my I always just thought like, oh, just you know, they'll save a few minutes here and there because the render's faster. But the thing that really opened my eyes was to this idea of like multiple applications can be worked on in the same time. So while you're waiting for one thing to render, you can go to the other. And previous machines just couldn't cope with the load, right, of a lot of this different types of applications being run at the same time. But also that idea of like being able to see more assets in real time on a screen because because it can be powered. It's like a big it's like a big difference, right? Because that means that you're not having to go back over the same thing multiple times. So like that's where the time savings are, where before my expectation was like, Yeah, but like if we if it's faster rendering, like yeah, maybe you can do it in a third of the time, but really how much is that? But it's way more than that. It's it's throughout the entire production process, the time is being saved. And for a small company, that is massively important because they're probably paying a lot of their animators by the hour. And so, you know, right, like it helps. Um, Protoss Play XDR, like that was something that everyone was talking about, like stuff we already knew, right? That uh, Oh, I got to see the nano texture. It's beautiful. Oh, my God, Jason. I've seen it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's that, that is a beautiful screen. And I was seeing some HDR stuff. Um, so Thomas, uh, was showing me a, a commercial that he'd been working on and it was like a dark room, but there were some lights in it and the lights were so bright in this dark room. It kind of looked like someone just cut a hole in the monitor and the light was coming through it. It was bananas, like super, super awesome. Um, I want one of those displays so bad, but have nothing to no use for that. that right like yeah. i did but you know obviously the reference mode they're a big deal for cinematic work right because if you're working on something that's meant to be seen in a specific way uh you can see it right and this is what i was saying earlier about how this like jumanji project could be taken on because the you know the client the, the studio needed it to be seen in a certain way in a certain reference mode that is built into the pro display xdr so they can just do the work in the modes that they like and then flick over and see how it looks in this cinematic mode and they're good. 
Um, and I mentioned earlier the music producer, Estelle. Uh, she was using the 16-inch MacBook Pro uh, to do things I didn't even, never even thought could be done in Logic, right? Like these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tracks. Like I used like four tracks in Logic. Um, but the thing that was wild to me is she had used the new microphone system to record an acoustic guitar. Just And she was just like, oh, what can it do? And she was so happy with the result. And I heard it. It sounded fantastic when it overlaid with a bunch of other stuff in a track. She's releasing music that has been... She has used the microphone in the 16-inch MacBook Pro to record. So, like, she loves the way that sounds so much. And it did sound great that she can now just record in a hotel room or whatever and can just put that into a track that she's releasing. And it was just like, all right. Like, I, you know, we know from this show, we tested it, right? Like, in spoken word, in podcasting, it's okay, but I wouldn't want to use it. Right. But, like, in a pinch, I could. But when used in a situation like music where you've got like a bunch of things happening at once, the downsides of it are taken away. Like, cause it's, it's over overall smoothed out by everything else that's happening around. Um, so I just thought it was sounded super cool. But so yeah, that was some stuff that I just wanted to share because I feel like having spoken to these people that work in these fields, my mindset has been shifted a little bit on what these, who the, who these products have been made for in a way that I think Apple wanted to communicate. Um, so I wanted to share it. For sure. It's interesting because, like, I mean, this is really just sort of explaining, like, why why did they make the choice they made in terms of who they're targeting with, uh, with the Mac Pro and the Pro Display. And this is this is the people that, they, that they're trying to reach with this, which is, you know, it doesn't, I think, really address the other part of this, which is, is there a is there a hole in the market that's not really being served by Apple that this product doesn't fill and that that's why people are unhappy with the choices they made but it does point to these people and say this is you know this is why we built this product is these people had a need that was not being fulfilled by any existing Mac yeah like I think the hole is like there there are people that want a machine like this right but don't need a lot of the power that Apple built into it but I think it's up to them if they want to make that. Like, I, I don't think the need is there in the same way that it was for these types of people, right? Where, like, the need is, otherwise I can't use a Macintosh anymore, right? right. Which is, like, a very different thing. And I don't know how much of Apple's priority is in the idea of, like, people want a specific type of computer because it's the type of computer they want. I don't know. I don't. I can't tell how much they would care about that, right? Maybe they would a lot. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they kind of would. I don't know. I know that I personally think that it would be super cool to own a machine like that, right? That like, if the Mac Pro was a thing that started at much cheaper prices, right? Like if it started at 2,500 and you could get something like the iMac Pro for like six or 7,000, 5,000, maybe that's a machine that I would own, right? But, because right. I like the aesthetics of it and I like the I really genuinely do like the idea of being able to upgrade that machine myself like having seen I mean I've been watching just lots of YouTube videos about because I, I like watching the iMac Pro the Mac Pro being taken apart I can't explain why I just think it's beautiful inside like I, you know, I would be able to update that on my own and that is like a super appealing thing and I know why people would want to do that but I just don't know if like that is a machine that Apple particularly wants to make. And we're kind of referring to this idea of like a budget tower, 
the X Mac, as it's been called for so many years, right? Um, that I think I think John Syracuse coined that phrase, right? I don't know. It's been around a long time. I'm just going to say John coined it in case he did, and then would be upset at me and provide follow up. I think it's way better to Fair. have the follow up be no, it wasn't me, than it was me, and how dare you disrespect me? So I'm just going to say that John Syracuse came up with the, the term X Mac. But this idea of like a smaller tower, right? Like, and I know why people would want it. But now I feel like I understand why much more the the uh, Mac Pro exists. Good. All right, should we take a break and talk about malware? Everyone's favorite subject. Oh yes, let's right. do that. I love it. Today's show is brought to you by Direct Mail. If you're looking to grow your customer base, connect with fans, or build a following this year, a super cost-effective way to reach people is still our friend email electronic mail for over 15 years direct mail for mac has been the go-to email marketing marketing app for businesses nonprofits, schools and other organizations who want to expand their reach and connect with customers it is designed just for the mac so you can get your work done in half the time using all the mac technologies that you've grown to love like drag and drop keyboard shortcuts integration with other applications and so much more like direct mail's eye-catching templates they're infinitely customizable and they look great on all all devices. Direct Mail have a helpful customer service staffed by real humans, no chatbots, no artificial intelligence, just friendly folk ready to help at no extra charge to you. You can send your first campaign today with a free download of Direct Mail and listeners of this show will save 10% of all of their full feature pricing plans. Head on over right now to directmailmac.com slash upgrade to experience the top rated email marketing app for the Mac and see how they can help your business grow. That is directmailmac.com slash upgrade to get 10% off all of their full feature pricing plans. Our thanks to Direct Mail for their support of this show and Relay FM. So Jason, uh, you wrote a uh, a post on Six Colors about malware and the Macintosh. Uh, can you explain to me why we're talking about this? So there's this company called Malwarebytes that is a maker of anti-malware software, cross-platform. And they do a report every year that's sort of like the state of malware as they see it. Because they've obviously got to, to do malware software, you have to have basically researchers who are seeing what stuff is spreading and they're up, you know, how it works and updating your, your system to fight it. Um, but it's also a marketing exercise. That's the truth of it is they are, they are trying to promote themselves as experts and they sell product that stops malware and mm -hmm. those go together. Mm -hmm. So they released their report for the state of malware in 2019 and one of the things, because of the way that they define their terms, one of the things that got picked up by a lot of tech news outlets and spread around was that they made this kind of extraordinary claim that essentially there was more malware on the Mac than on Windows and that there was a huge growth in Mac malware, mm -hmm. which is funny because as a Mac user, you're probably sitting there thinking, well, wait a second, I thought there wasn't any yep. malware on the Mac. And the truth is, they are using some pretty shaky definitions. They have defined malware to include apps that don't do anything or are misleading in what they do and sort of adware stuff that hijacks your browser um, to put up like pop-ups and things. So, you know, the Mac Keeper kind of stuff where somebody gets a, you know, you speed up your Mac if you download this and then it kind of infests your Mac and it's hard to remove it all and it keeps coming back and stuff like that. 
It's not quite the same as leaking your, you know, scanning your hard drive and leaking your personal information or um, destroying your computer or encrypting your hard drive and demanding ransom. Those are like traditional malware Mm -hmm. versus this other category of adware. Making your machine and you turning it into something for something else, right? Yeah, like a botnet. That, that you're yeah, now a exactly. Bitcoin farmer and you don't even know about exactly, it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I think I, I, I think that the coverage was, um, uh, the coverage that some outlets had was kind of misguided because it was, oh my God, Mac malware, which is exactly, I think, what Malwarebytes wants because they want people to buy their software. So just, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think there is... So I'm balancing that, saying that I think that they they went too far and that they made this a little too alarmist with the real bit of, I think, interesting information in this report, which is it's definitely the case that um, these sort of sleazy groups that have these apps that they want to convince you to download with a link on a website somewhere Mm -hmm. and you download it thinking you have a problem and then they install and again, they're not... They're not really malware, but they are going to redirect your, you know, your web pages and your ad requests on web pages, and they're going to do all this other kind of gross stuff, and and they're going to make it hard to for you to remove it. That that is on the rise. That stuff is on the rise. There are more of those. There were new ones, and there was a lot more of it than there used to be. And that seems to be accurate. That in 2019, there were many more attempts to get this stuff out there on on the Mac. Um, so I think that's interesting. The other point that didn't come across in a lot of stories about this report that I think is interesting is that in November, Apple kind of quietly clarified their rules for being on the platform. And this is not... There's a tech note. I linked to it in my story. We can link to it in the show notes. There's a, a tech note that basically says, here's what we don't allow on the platform. And this is not allowing the Mac App Store. Like, this stuff's not allowed in the Mac App Store. So you basically, unless there's a, a horrible mistake that they have to correct, which I guess happens occasionally, but basically, this is not stuff you get in the Mac App Store. This is stuff that you download from somewhere on the internet. But Apple, Apple's control of the Mac as a platform is not limited to the Mac App Store, right? Like, they have these other mechanisms, and by redefining their rules or, or clarifying their rules, they are also... You know they're they're pointing out that they have a, a couple of big hammers that they can use to smash things on the Mac if they want. Like every new version of Mac software after I think June of last year has to be notarized, which means you have to upload it. Uh, every, every piece of software you have to upload it to an Apple server, and then they scan it and then they wrap it in a cryptographic signature and send it back to you. So every uh, Mac app that is by default kind of runnable. Um, you can get around it if you really want to, but by default that is runnable um, has to have this signature. It means it won't be tampered with. It also means that it's passed some tests, and it also means that Apple has that ID, and if they find that you're in violation, that your app does something sleazy, they can kill it. They just kill it, and it, and it, and it stops working. So is this, th- th- they can only do this for apps that have been notarized? No, they can. I mean, they can. So, <laughs> there are different kinds. They they have a they have a an antivirus and malware protection sc- scheme where they can basically target anything. But they also have this other option, which is targeting the signature of an app prevents it from being launchable. 
Right. So if I remember rightly, this is what they did to that um, BitTorrent app transmission. Right. That got yeah. That got uh, kind of man in the middle attack. Right. Yeah. So so there are. Um, my, and my point here is that even if you're not in the Mac app, app Store, Apple has ways of killing your software if they really want to. Mm-hmm. And by clarifying their rules, what they did is their rules always said kind of like. Yes, we mean malware. We mean things that affect your computer or send your personal information in ways you aren't aware of. Like those, those are there. But also, it's things like making it hard to remove it, uh, changing its name so that you can't find it, um, trying to get you to pay to remove it, uh, redirecting requests, doing other. Like, there's a whole list of things that that fall into this category. And my understanding is that when Malwarebytes came up with this list of all of these adware things, making it seem like the Mac is infested with all of this adware stuff, that um, you can probably make a pretty good link there that the rise of the adware is why Apple probably clarified its rules. And I think most of that stuff has been smashed, has been, you know, whacked by Apple. Like, they got the hammer. So... um, so it, it was worth having that conversation that it looks like there is something that went on where um, the Mac is a higher profile target for some of this garbage software than it used to be, but that Apple then has seemingly responded to that rise with a clarification of its own policies, and it's got a bunch of levers it can pull to have that stuff just die if they feel like it crosses the line. Now, there are some exceptions to this like we've we've talked about there there are apps that we look at and say i don't know why that app exists where it's like oh it'll clean up your logs and remove files and make your mac work faster and you look at it and you say i don't think that's necessary or right can i just take a quick very just a quick thing because like people get these types of applications confused right like mac keeper is this i don't know just not great app, but there are applications that help you like look at what's on your hard drive and delete stuff and I think, and I have used those, right? So uh, applications like Clean My Mac and Daisy Disk. This is my point: is I can provide some skepticism about some of those apps, you know, and whether that category needs to exist. What I like them for, and what I've used those apps okay. for, is like I just don't know where the if I need if I have, if I'm running low on storage space. Sometimes right. I You've just got log need files to see somewhere that where, where are the large files, and those applications have always helped me find things that I wouldn't have known. And some Mac users will know, for example, where to go to remove the old backup files of old iPhones, but I right. don't, and it helps me for that. So this is my point, which is Apple is not they're they're making this a light touch, right? Like you really need to be uh, doing something misleading. To, to get in trouble um it, it's not it's not saying we've decided that this kind of app you shouldn't use it and so we're going to kill it that's not what they're doing no so and i likened it in my story to how the the food and drug administration in the u.s doesn't uh, evaluate um herbal supplements for whether they work or not right they're like look some people like them some people don't, don't think they're worth it we're not making a judgment. It's a little like that, which is right. We want Apple to take a light yeah, touch. If it's not harmful, then don't do anything about it if people are happy with it. Yeah. So the And, and we don't want an Apple that's an activist Apple that's coming in and shutting down apps that people feel are legitimate just because Apple doesn't like them or that Apple has an alternative that they built that they want you to use, right? That's no good. But that's not what they're doing here. So anyway, it's a... Um, 
it's kind of a, a fascinating issue. Um, the thing that kind of got me mad was reading a, a recode story that quoted the guy who is basically the Mac guy at Malwarebytes. And he made this statement that's like, you know, Mac users say that Mac Macs don't need anti-malware software. And it's just an illusion because you can see all of the bad stuff that's out there. And, you know, that's why my story ends with me saying, no, you don't need anti-malware software. This is because I, th- I think it, it, it is a, a quote that shows that he's um, trying to scare people because it benefits his company. Mm-hmm. But I think there is also some truth in it that, that is worth discussing, which is I think it's possible that some Mac users make bad decisions because they think they're invulnerable and they're not. There are bad things that can happen to you on the Mac if you download random software from random places that you don't know who did it, and it asks you for permission to install a bunch of things, and then your Mac starts acting really weird. Like that, that can happen, and that you know, and and Apple may not save you from that, or they may not save you for a while from that. So I do, I do think that the perception that Macs can't get malware is potentially culturally bad in that it makes Mac users um, not behave kind of carefully on the internet when they're running software. But that said, I don't run malware software. I never have. And I, as John Syracuse mentioned on ATP last week, uh, it, it in many ways it it is just as bad <laughs> as some bad software in terms of kind of wrecking your Mac experience and slowing yeah. everything down. So, yeah. I think that it's like, it is an often said thing right Macs don't get viruses it's not completely accurate but there is a big difference between like people's mindset of like the way that windows devices would get viruses and that's gotten way better on windows now but like you know back in the day just going to some websites was a problem right and sure that that was like a thing and that didn't happen to the mac like that's true but like it is possible to see that if you are a irresponsible uh, or oblivious Mac user, just clicking on anything and doing whatever you want, right. yeah, you can get malware. And there is, as you mentioned earlier, like companies, well, companies, bad actors who make this stuff right. are now targeting the Mac more than they have before. There's a reason why... I mean, most of the bad malware that we've seen on the Mac is actually stuff that's come from pirated software, mm-hmm. <laughs> where it's in a shady place of the internet, and then they put they take real software and they kind of put it up as a, a pirate download, but they've actually altered it to be, uh, you know, a malware installer. And like, there are yes, you can do specifically you know dumb things to endanger your Mac. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's always good to be wary. And I think what Apple always says is download from the Mac App Store or other trusted sources. Like yes, if you download that from Microsoft or Adobe or or you know bare bones or whoever, like okay, you can do that. And th- this is why Apple has. Um, you know, changed the defaults about what apps can run and built a built Gatekeeper, which uh, originally looked at your app the first time it launched, and now looks at your app not just the first time it launches, but thereafter to make sure that it it passes some tests. And it's why they've got their anti malware software that isn't totally invisible, but runs in the background and auto updates and will kill anything that Apple has flagged as being bad. Um, so Apple has continued to step up their game. This is why they asked for permission so that as annoying as it is in Catalina, the motivation there is that if some app 
that you downloaded that's supposed to be a calendar asks to read your entire hard drive that you were able to look at that and go, well, wait a second. Why would I let it do that? Why is it doing that? Like that is an alert to say this app may be doing things you are not aware of. Or why is it reading? Why does it want to read my address book? If it's not address book related, it's not contacts list related. Um, that's why they put all of those in. It does give me pause. There's a, a line in the Malwarebytes story or a report about how a lot of the vectors that are on the Mac now are based on shell scripts, you know, command line terminal stuff. And um, I use that stuff all the time, but it makes me think that if that's the latest vector for this stuff, probably in future versions of Mac OS, we're going to see Apple lock that stuff down even more. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and another thing that um, Dan Morin brought up last week when I was talking to him on the, on the podcast I do with him for Six Colors members is um, I think one of the, the great um, danger points on the Mac to this day is installers that ask you for your password when they install stuff because they have to install special components. And, you know, most apps don't do that. But every now and then there's an app that's like, I need you to put in your password so I can put some stuff in some various places. And that's an invisible process, right? And I feel like if I were doing a a to-do list of security at Apple, I'd actually put that on my list as um, any app that wants to ask you for your password in order to install stuff has to go through a system where they list everything that they're putting everywhere and why and then let you uh, you know let you undo it later with a, a couple of clicks because that's that's where i get kind of creeped out of like well I, what are you putting where and why and it's kind of invisible so you know there's more apple's going to do and I, I think we need to have that conversation and have it when catalina came out that sometimes apple is getting in the way of 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 user desire in places that it shouldn't. And I think like demanding approval for access to the desktop and documents folders is a great example of like, that's, I think it's really silly and annoying and that's not how apps should work. But at the same time, they are trying to protect us from stuff like this and try to anticipate the next vector mm-hmm. of um, people doing bad stuff to your Mac. It's a super difficult line to have to walk, right? Right. Because people like me and you get frustrated by the security dialogues and some of the things that get locked down, but they're not necessarily doing it for me or you. But then there is this question of like, how much is too much and how much ends up just making your experience so much worse that you accept all the dialogues anyway, right? Like it's a real, it's a real line to walk, but it is helpful for a lot of people, I guess, I guess if it's stopping them from their machines being taken over or get or slowed down or worse. Yeah, I think the danger is if you um, <laughs> you think you you act with confidence, but you don't actually know. Like you think, oh well, I can just say yes because everything's fine, and that's what I was saying, sort of about cultural issues. Like if you believe you can just agree to anything because it's the Mac and your Mac is impervious, that's not great. You know, a lot of uh, advanced users are going to install all sorts of wacky stuff and do all sorts of things that are probably um, not safe. But uh, they are better equipped to determine sort of like what a trusted resource is. Um, but uh, an average user who is not really equipped to determine uh, what a trusted resource is and in fact doesn't even care because they just think that the Mac is impervious, that's where you get into a danger zone. And I know that that's why Apple wants to kind of intercept that stuff, which is why Apple has said in public that they're not going to make it impossible for you to run software you want to run on your Mac. What they're going to do is they're going to get in your way and say, 
you sure you want to do this? Or go turn that setting off if you want to do this. Mm. Because they want to stop the people who don't understand what it is they're about to agree to. And they've been talked into doing it by some webpage somewhere. Um, and that's what they're trying to intercept. I want to talk about the iPad in 2020 because there are some reports that are interesting, somewhat conflicting, and I, I, I just want to see what you think. So Digitimes is reporting that Apple will be releasing its first 5G products in the second half of 2020. Um, this will be for at least some models of the iPhone and also the iPad Pro with the A14 and a 14x chips respectively for those products but there are also many rumors suggesting apple will upgrade the ipad pro line in march to include the triple lens camera system with a time of flight sensor for ar so the question posed by these two things is could we see two ipad pro refreshes in 2020 or at some point in 2020 there will be like an additional model of the ipad pro which has 5g as well as its other features. What do you think about this? Well, uh, when I look at the first wave of 5G products from other phone makers, it looks like what everybody did is just take their product and then do a 5G variant. Mm -hmm. So if Apple's going to come out with new iPads in the spring and they want to do a 5G-capable iPad, my guess is that it's just going to be, we'll get the, whatever it is, fourth-generation iPad Pro in the spring, and then there'll be a fourth-generation iPad Pro with 5G option in the fall. Yeah. And that it might even be as simple as it's literally the same iPad, but now there is a 5G option you can buy for an extra however many dollars it is. And that's that's my guess, is I, I don't think Apple you know, wants to delay the iPad out of its 18-month cycle and put it in when the phones are coming out just to delay for 5G. And 5G, you know, again, it's nice to have it. Uh, I I wouldn't be surprised if Apple just doesn't do it. Like, just, it's like, no, the iPad doesn't even need 5G. But if they really feel like they want their entire product line to inherit, uh, that has cellular to inherit 5G at some point, I could just see them sliding that out at some point in the fall and saying, oh, by the way, the iPad Pro now does 5G too. Whether it's a you know, additional fee or whether they just sort of slipstream it and the old cellular iPad Pro is replaced by a new one that is a 5G instead. Um, but because uh, that's a real question, right? Is like the cost of a 5G, uh, 5G modem, the cost of that 5G being integrated. Do they do they charge extra money for that? Or is it just sort of like, well, we've now changed the cellular version to be 5g i don't know the answer to that but that's yep. my guess is just yep. it's going to be that simple of like oh yeah it does 5g now we we drop that in it's not a new product it's the same product but now there's a 5g variant and that's it yeah i i, I think that's kind of where i'm leaning to where like we do still get some new ipad pros in the spring because i think that there's a lot of smoke around that right we were just talking about it last week mm -hmm. right like these new hardware keyboard things right like it's just stuff happening which doesn't make any other sense as to why it would maybe happen now like except for new hardware plus there's just you know it's time for the ipad pro to be refreshed i think leaving it until september would would be two years which feels like too long um they might want to have more power in the ipad pro before wwdc we'll see who right. knows um but then there could, I think if they, I, I do think if the iPhone goes 5G this year, which I think it will, I think that they would also want to have the iPad Pro go 5G. And if I was going to put money on the table, I would 
say that they would say, oh, you know the LTE iPad? You can't get that anymore. It's now a 5G iPad. And they just slot that in in its place um, for both sizes. That's what I think they'll do. Um, and then, you know, make a big thing about Apple going like all in on 5G. Uh, so there was also some reports that I saw um, that Apple might use their own antennas for 5G. They will not use the Qualcomm ones in the 2020 phones, which is surprising and kind of counter to what we thought. But uh, that that kind of seems like that's the, they're where they're going with it. Or at least they will do... Um, you know how for years Apple would use different companies for the antennas, right? Like some phones would be Intel's. Do you mean the modems? Is that what, <laughs> Not what the antennas. Say? Yeah, modem. Sorry, the modem. But you, okay. know, you know how... Well, it's like, Mike versus the modems again. There you go. They're, they're, they're a very, it's a very specific antenna band. Uh-huh. Uh, there's, there was a report from Fast Company indicating Apple would look to limit its reliance on Qualcomm. This is quoting from The Verge. But the iPhone maker said to be exploring designing its own 5G, they say antenna in, that, in the article... Oh. Okay. Well, I mean, you could design an antenna and uh, for your the your hardware, and then have the modem attached to it. But it's, I mean, clearly they don't want to ultimately rely on Qualcomm for anything. But my impression is that they're going to for now. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know enough oh, about that report what? to say. Sorry, Jason. I actually think it is an antenna thing, right? Like there are antennas as well as modems, uh-huh. and that Apple is looking to develop its own antennas because it's unhappy well, with Qualcomm's. I'm not okay. I mean that that's a really weird uh, specific inside baseball story, but are we surprised that Apple would choose to take control of some part of the hardware design that they don't need to rely on Qualcomm for? I'm not. Not surprising. No. Uh so yeah, I I would expect it. I mean, I do think I mean, I've I've made picks on this on connected. I do think this is the year that Apple goes in on 5G. Um just because Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think it would be it would be the thing. If they didn't do it, right, that would be the thing of this iPhone that everyone will write their articles about, right? Like, oh, Apple being left behind, right? Like, that's... I'm not saying that's why they're doing it. There's good reason to do it, right? Like, 5G rollout is becoming a thing, right? Like, in in the in Europe, in America, like, it's becoming a thing, and they would be being left behind. Because, you know, you mentioned about, like, phone makers last year had, like, in a more expensive 5G variant of their phones, but this year, you know, like Samsung's devices and the devices coming out from other manufacturers, they just come with 5G antennas in them. Like, yeah. it's not an additional thing anymore. Antennas and modems. Both. And modems. My word. I One day yeah. I'll get those right. But yeah, they're coming with 5G support. Uh, just there you go. Into, there you go, yes. into the phone completely. And, and my guess is, I think I'm with you. I think Apple's just going to release phones that have 5G. Oh, I don't think there will be like the the only the Mac supports it or whatever. Like that seems wild. Yeah, or or a five G variant, right? Like they skipped that era that year. Yep. They're like, no, we're not going to do that. And then this year, when everything it's much more of a mainstream, just like all the phones have it, which is why I actually kind of lead to lean to the idea that if they're going to do a five G iPad update, um, it would probably just be replacing the cellular in mm-hmm. the cellular iPad with mm-hmm. a, a different one um, on the iPad Pro. But uh, who knows? Who knows? The the uh, processor stuff would be... Right, like if they if they do an iPad in the fall, they could have the A14X instead of the like an A13X. But if you look at the speed of the current iPad Pro, it's still kind of spectacular. Yeah. So does the iPad Pro really need to, you know, go to the 14 because the a13x we they'll call it that but it's really a you know an ipad pro variant of that processor it's made 
it's a new processor made for the iPad Pro for 2020, and they they only need to do that once. Right, right. That they might not have to bump it to A14X. Like it's just not I mean, not necessary. My my guess would be that if they're not planning to release new iPads in the fall, that that's you know this is part of the roadmap is that this is going to be the most advanced chip that they can make now and is it a a14 or an a13 well they'll probably call it an a13x but does it have technology that is that is more advanced than the regular a13 probably right probably Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that so you know there's some reality there and there's some marketing there all right Let's finish up today's episode with some hashtag ask upgrade questions. But before we do, I want to thank our last sponsor of this episode, and that is DoorDash. Delivery is more than just pizza in the year of 2020. With a selection of your favorite flavors from across the globe, DoorDash will let you order world cuisine all from the comfort of your living room with DoorDash. Getting your meal delivered means you can take back time in your day to finish that project, get in on that workout, or finish up with chores Ordering is super easy. You just open the DoorDash app, choose whatever you want, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Your favorite restaurant is probably already on DoorDash, but there are over 310,000 restaurants in over 4,000 cities with door-to-door delivery in all 50 U.S. states, Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia. You can order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. Jason, even sitting in that hotel room that you're in right now, you could get something from DoorDash delivered to you if you didn't want to leave. Let me tell you, that is a common thing that happens at this uh, at this event that I'm going to at this convention is that you end up with the, maybe we should get somebody to bring us Thai food from that Thai restaurant that's a mile away. And we do that. And it's great because they're like, oh, the room service is really expensive and the mm-hmm. what the options are really limited, but we can just order for, you know, for 10 people. We just put it into DoorDash, put it in the app and, um, and then, and then you get your, uh, everybody gets their food and is not hungry anymore. Jason, I know what we're going to do for WWDC lunch next year. Well, we're going to DoorDash it? We're going to DoorDash it. We're, we're, every time when Jason's making his way over to me and I'm taking notes after the WWDC keynote before we record our episode. I say, Mike, I need a like, sandwich. What, I need a well, taco. Also, we both need lunch. What are we going to do? And we never know what to do because the places no. are always so busy. Next time, we're just going to DoorDash it. We'll order it in advance, right? We'll get it okay. all ready and have it delivered to Great us. Great idea. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the promo code UPGRADE. That is $5 off your first order. You just go to the App Store, download the DoorDash app, use the promo code UPGRADE. Download it right now. Start planning your dinner. That is $5 off your first order with the promo code UPGRADE in the DoorDash app. Our thanks to DoorDash for their support of this show and Relay FM. And Jason, now is time. Well, some hashtag ask upgrade questions to round out episode 285 of this here program. When we start with Andrew, and Andrew says, could it be that the Apple TV is just hanging around as the lowest price HomeKit hub? Yeah. I mean, it does it, right? But anything can it. be a HomeKit hub. An I, I, well, an iPad can be a HomeKit hub. And is it just a, iPads I mean, and, and, uh, and a, Apple and TVs? HomePod. And HomePod. So I, I feel like... I don't, I mean, so here's the thing, Andrew, like, technically, yeah, like, it does do that, but I don't think that's why Apple are keeping it like that. I think the reason the iPad and the home, and the HomePod can be used as a HomeKit hub is because they know they need to spread that out, unlike the Apple right. TV isn't, because it used to be the Apple TV was the only thing, right, as a hub for your HomeKits, like something that could control your HomeKit devices, when you're outside of the home, 
Right. Uh, but now there's multiple products that can do that. It's, it's a fine reason to have one if you've already got one. I don't think it's a reason to buy one. Right. I mean, and I've heard from some people who are like, oh, well, you, you guys didn't mention that Apple TV is important from a privacy standpoint because I don't trust Amazon or Roku to not watch what I'm doing and sell my information and all that. And it's like, fair enough. My understanding, though, is that like... Your TV can just tell what's on the screen sometimes. So, and you can turn that stuff off too. But is okay. it is it working? And keep your TV off the network and all of that. My my point is, we're we're really not saying why does Apple make the Apple TV as much as we're saying why is the Apple t- TV the way that it is, mm. and what role does it serve when the competition has, you know, I bought a 4K Amazon Fire Stick for twenty five bucks, and that Apple costs Apple TV costs seven times that, and that seems a bit much so like what what role does it serve and as a premium streamer that has better privacy and all that that makes sense to me i still feel like the price is just way out of whack with Mm -hmm. the rest of the the world but um we'll see what they do isaac wants to know how many times a day do you accidentally take a screenshot on your iphone isaac's about two a day i would say at least once a week i go to my photo roll and find a screenshot of my morning alarm (laughs) i do it on my ipad all the time actually oh really or not because i'm grabbing the edge of my ipad to pick it up and Mm -hmm. it it takes a a screenshot because it's it's the buttons are right on the corner there Mm -hmm. so if you if you have it have your fingers just right you'll take a screenshot of your ipad as you're picking it up it's great for me, like, because I have my iPhone in one of the Studio Neat Material docs, and it's like on my night table, and so I'll just reach out to like press the side of my phone to stop the alarm, and a lot of the times I'm doing that, I'm like grabbing the whole side of the phone, and taking the taking the screenshot. So that's why that happens to me. I've never really gotten used to to that press all the buttons, take the screenshot thing. You know what I'd really like um, is that the floating window has a shortcut to delete the screenshot but it doesn't <laughs> oh right just like so as soon as it's there like if i flick it across the screen or if i take it all the way up to the top or something like that i can be like no just go away and, and have like a little trash icon or something appear and i can drag it in there i'd like that because sometimes I, I do take them like little a little, button, whatever. A little you know like a little sf icon next to the yeah that'd be nice there's a share sheet that comes out if you tap and hold but um even that doesn't really satisfy me <laughs> so like I, I think I'd like that to be better. Tim asks, "What do you think they'll call this year's iPhones?" My favorite type oh, of boy. question. Will they really make us say the iPhone 11 S Pro Max, or just go to 12, or something crazy like iPhone 5G? I think they're going to 12. Personally, I think it's yeah. going to be 12. Okay, just a quick question. Mm-hmm. Lots yeah. of phone makers this year are making big jumps. Like Samsung just went to 20 because, like, uh-huh. 2020. Apple wouldn't do that, would they? They just go to 12. I. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like I've been saying for years that Apple doesn't want to end up in a situation where it's like, ladies and gentlemen, the iPhone 24, right? Like, Do you think they could call it the iPhone 5G? I mean, they called it the iPhone 3G. So here's the thing. So so I keep thinking, how do they get out away from the increments? And I'm not sure that they have found a way to do that. But this would be an opportunity for them to brand, if they truly have their whole line as 5G, to brand it that way is just to call it the iPhone 5G and ride on the fact that everybody is talking about 5G this year. And then next year they could still make the iPhone, uh, you know, 12 or 13 or make it something else. But if I had to, if I had to put money down on one thing, it would be 12, not 11 S because I agree that with this new wide array of different variant names, like, uh, you know, pro max, uh, 11s pro max is a mouthful it's not like there wasn't a 10s pro max so they might do it but um 
but if I had to guess one, but I do think that 5G is a possibility. Don't forget, there's still those rumors of like more and more phones this year. So like naming could get bananas. It could. Right? Like it we, could. We could end up with iPhone 12, iPhone 12 Max, iPhone 12 Pro, iPhone 12 Pro Max with 5G. I, I actually kind of like iPhone 5G and iPhone 5G Pro. I don't know. That just that, that feels good to me rather than the number. And I agree with you. Like yeah. you have the ability to do it this year for a good reason. So why not give it a go? And then next, sure. then next year, just do something completely different rather than saying, "Oh, it's the twelve or the 13 now." Sounds great to me. Jonathan asks: When Apple switches the Mac to ARM, what upgrades do you think you'll be able to make in the configurator? Do you like? I Jonathan says, "I guess there'll just be one processor choice. Will we still be able to choose RAM? What do you think? Like, do you think it's going to be so when if and when Apple switches to Mac, uh, the Mac to the ARM processors? Do you think it will be like an iPhone and an iPad where you basically don't get any configuration options, or do you think Apple will still allow you to make choices?" I um, I wrote a Macworld column about this a while ago because when I was looking at the MacBook Air and the fact that it basically has no options for um, processor, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I had this moment where I thought, oh, it's going to be like this, isn't it? I, I do think that there will still be options on Macs, some, but I think it's going to be less. It would not surprise me if... If we really are end up in a world where there's a, an ARM, let's say MacBook Air and an ARM MacBook Pro 13 and an ARM MacBook Pro 16, which there might not be, it, it's possible ARM will only come to consumer and not to uh, pro laptops. It's also possible that it will come to all laptops. But m- my point is, in that scenario, it would not surprise me if computer A came with processor type A and computer B came with processor type B. And computer C came with processor type C, and that's it. And then maybe you can, maybe you would adjust the storage and and maybe, maybe the RAM, maybe not. But that I think Apple wants to make, ideally, Apple would like to live in a world like the iPad and the iPhone, where your choices are very limited. Like you don't buy an iPad and choose what processor goes in it. You don't buy an iPhone and choose what processor goes in it. You can choose your storage. You don't even choose your RAM. Although with the iPad, you can choose the most expensive one that has a little more RAM, but Apple doesn't talk about it. So uh, that's I think that's that's what Apple wants to do. Whether they'll be able to get away with it in all the details of what it's like to move a platform to ARM and have a, a PC platform on ARM, we'll see. Mm-hmm. But I think if given their druthers, that would be what they would choose. Steven asks, if you could make one uh, third-party device or an iPad or iOS feature exist to make podcasting from those devices better, what would it be? Oh, this is easy. I want iOS, iPadOS, to support apps being able to capture audio Mm -hmm. in the background. I Mm -hmm. essentially, I want audio hijack for iOS. I want to be able, on on my Mac, I can say, record my microphone to a file record the sound coming out of Skype to a different file, Um, even like route the audio to different places for different tasks. And that's all that, I mean, that to me, that's the last piece that's missing is what I should be able to do is plug any USB microphone or audio interface into an iOS device or iPad OS device 
and press record and do what I do on my Mac. And instead, I have like a second recorder that's external that I'm using right now to do this. So for me, it's it's essentially that is I want the OS to provide that additional recording thing so that I can have, um, you know, audio hijack essentially on my iPad. All right. If you, I, I agree. Actually, by the way, like that's what I want—just multiple streams of audio in software that to be controlled, sent, and recorded, like just like you could do on the Mac. Then yep. we could do it. That's the last. That's part. it. It's the last thing. That's it. All right. If you would like to send in a question for a future episode of the show, just send out a tweet with the hashtag #AskUpgrade. Please send those in. We love to get those questions and and try and provide you with the answers or the opinions that you're looking for. Thanks so much to our sponsors for this episode: Bombus, Direct Mail, and DoorDash. You can find Jason online at sixcolors.com and theincomparable.com, as well as here at Relay FM, where Jason hosts many shows. Uh, he is at Jason L J S N E double L on social media. I am at iMike I M Y K E. Please go check out the test drivers. Um, that's my new show with austin evans where we talk about all things technology and try and work out what the best products are for you uh we'll be back next week and jason will be who knows where probably back in uh, six, at home. six colors land yeah yeah um until then thank you so much for listening say goodbye jason snell goodbye from los angeles dude hollywood jason snell over there <laughs>